Welcome and thank you for tuning in to the Grace Assembly of God Sermon Podcast. Grace exists to help people discover a life of purpose in Jesus Christ through discipleship and serving one another. If you would like additional information, visit us online at www.graceofbelair.com. Again, thank you for joining us and enjoy this week's message. Today I want to I want to share with you God's word about serving God and serving people as salt and light. And in Matthew chapter 4, there begins a transition in the book of Matthew. And the first three, first three chapters of Matthew uh, set up how that Jesus Christ came and, and he would fulfill the law. It's an introduction. introduction. But in Matthew chapter 4 and 5 that we'll be looking at today, Jesus began to, he instituted his ministry. Uh, John the Baptist, you remember, had baptized him in the wilderness. And then for 40 days, Jesus underwent uh, temptation and conflict with the enemy of our soul, Satan. He was able to, on three different occasions, to... Uh, to defeat him and to put him down with the Word of God because there's power in the Word of God. And then John the Baptist died, and then Jesus began, began his public ministry and began to preach repentance, repentance primarily to people who were religious. That's primarily who he was preaching to. And so when we get to chapter 4, um, the Bible said, quotes a scripture concerning him that the people who sat in a great darkness have seen a great light, and that light is Jesus Christ, and we quote that during the Christmas season. I want to encourage us today that the Lord is here, and God is here to do something in your heart and in your life. God is here to do something that's transforming. He's here to do something that will change your life, and... Um, and he's no respecter of persons, no matter where you are. Jesus Christ is here today to minister and to offer to you his touch that only he can give. We're going to look at the Bible Project video on, on uh, just uh, some of the introduction to the book of Matthew. And so if we'd show that now, that'll be good. The Gospel According to Matthew it's one of the earliest official accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The book itself is anonymous, but the earliest reliable tradition links it to Matthew the tax collector, who was one of the 12 apostles that Jesus appointed, and he actually appears within the book itself. For about 30 to 40 years, the apostles orally taught and passed on their eyewitness accounts about Jesus, along with his teachings that they had all memorized. And Matthew has then collected and arranged all these into this amazing tapestry and designed the book to highlight certain themes about Jesus. In this video, we're just going to cover the first half of the book. Specifically, Matthew wants to show how Jesus is the continuation and fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel. That Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David. That he is a new authoritative teacher like Moses. And not only that, Jesus is God with us, or in Hebrew, Emmanuel. And Matthew's designed this book with an introduction and then a conclusion, and these act like a frame around five clear sections right here in the center, each of which concludes with a long block of Jesus' teaching. Now, this design is very intentional, and it's amazing. Just watch how this works. 
Chapters 1 through 3, they set the stage by attaching Jesus' story right onto the storyline of the Old Testament scriptures. So Matthew opens with a genealogy about Jesus that highlights how he is from the messianic line of the son of David, and he's a son of Abraham. That means he's going to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. After that, we get the famous story about Jesus' birth and how all of the events fulfilled the Old Testament prophetic promises that the nations would come and honor the Messiah, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but even more than that, Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit, his name Emmanuel, all these work together to show that Jesus is no mere human. He is God with us. God become human. So you can see two of Matthew's key themes right here in the introduction. He's from the line of David. He's Emmanuel. But Matthew also wants to show how Jesus is a new Moses. So like Moses, Jesus came up out of Egypt He passed through the waters of baptism, and he entered into the wilderness for 40 days. And then Jesus goes up onto a mountain to deliver his new teaching. So through all of this, Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the promised greater than Moses figure who's going to deliver Israel from slavery. He's going to give them new divine teaching. He's going to save them from their sins and bring about a new covenant relationship between God and his people. This Moses and Jesus parallel also explains why Matthew has structured the center of the book the way that he did. These five main parts highlight Jesus as a teacher, and he's created a parallel. Jesus as a teacher parallels the five books of Moses. Jesus is the new authoritative covenant teacher who's going to fulfill the storyline of the Torah. Now, in the first section, chapters 4 to 7, Jesus steps onto the scene announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. And this is really key. The kingdom is, in essence, about God's rescue operation for his whole world. And it's taking place through King Jesus. Jesus has come to confront evil, especially spiritual evil, and its whole legacy of demon oppression and disease and death. Jesus has come to restore God's rule and reign over the whole world by creating a new family of people who will follow him, obey his teachings, and live under his rule. So, after Jesus begins healing people and forming a movement, a community, he takes his followers out to a mountain or a hillside, and he delivers his first big block of teaching, traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. And here Jesus explores what it looks like to follow him and live in God's kingdom. And it's an upside-down kingdom where there are no privileged members. So the poor, the nobodies, the wealthy, the religious, everybody is invited and is called to turn, to repent, and to follow Jesus and join his family. Jesus says that he's not here to set aside the commands of the Torah or the Old Testament. Rather, he's here to fulfill all of that through his life, through his teachings. He's here to transform the hearts of his people so that they can truly love God and love their neighbor, including their enemy. Excellent. Did you catch that, that the reason that Jesus Christ came was for a rescue mission? A rescue mission. And he would announce and inaugurate his kingdom, which is now but not yet. We have the privilege of being part of God's kingdom in our heart, but God works through you and me to establish his kingdom, and one day at the culmination of of time that Christ Jesus will come back as King of kings and Lord of lords, creation will be restored, and God's purposes for all the earth will be realized. And so 
he comes to establish a kingdom that is upside down in that, as you've heard, there, there, is, no, there, there is no honor system or power system as we know it. Uh, that day for the Jewish people and Gentiles that were listening to Jesus Christ, they were keenly aware of the two power structures in their life that guided them and was like a cloud over them that provided how they should live. One was the Roman government and the other was the, the Jewish uh, faith, uh, the system of sacrifices. Jesus Christ came to announce his kingdom and the good news of his kingdom is this, that God is no respecter of persons, that everyone has value and we come into his kingdom by repenting. You say, Pastor, what do you mean repenting? It's when God's Spirit comes to our life and we realize that our ways are undone before God, that we cannot have a relationship with God based on what we can do, but it's by His grace and mercy and because of His great love that He's shown towards us that He has made an offer to us today to change our lives from the inside out. Can someone say, thank you, Lord? Yes. But He calls you and me and chapter 4 and 5, to be fishers of men, to be the salt of the earth, and to be the light of this world. He is establishing his kingdom, but he's invited you, and he's invited me for the rare and the unique privilege to follow him and to be the ones that are the feet and the hands and the legs that established the kingdom of God. Can someone say thank the Lord? It's, it's what, a, what a wonderful privilege, what a high calling. Um, when he calls us to be salt and light fishers of men, he's putting the ball in our court. Several years ago, in uh, the early 2000s, 1999, 2000, something like that, I was in New York, uh, in um, Newark, New Jersey, and I was there for a weekend to preach um, in my, my role, in my assignment in, U, in U.S. missions, and this is an urban setting, and I was with wonderful, wonderful U.S. missionaries, Paul Valerius and his wife, what true servants of God. I stayed in their home, and I marveled at, at just their servant attitude and, and how they were salt and light and how God was using them. And uh, I, I was humbled beyond words when they had me sleep in their bedroom. And I offered to pay for a hotel room, and they wouldn't hear of it. No, they gave me the best thing that they had in their house. And I felt really uncomfortable doing that, but they absolutely insisted. And so on a Saturday morning, I walked down to one of the neighborhood little, uh, little stores where you could buy newspapers and coffee, and you, you've seen those type of places, in, particularly in New York City and some of the cities of New Jersey. And I received a phone call, and it was from my brother Phil, and he said to me, hey, would, do you want to go fishing? And my first answer was yes. <laughs> when and, and where? And he said, well, here's the deal. And Phil had been the managing partner of a real estate company, and, they had, and he, had, he sold that with his partners, and they had got together and they wanted to gift him something that was memorable, that was memorable, and what it was was a fishing trip, all expenses paid 
to a world-class, very exclusive fishing resort in northern Canada just below the Arctic Circle. How many could go for something like that? And so, yeah, uh, let me tell you, it was a trip of a lifetime. We flew up to Winnipeg, and then they flew, flew us up on this, this was about a 1952 uh, prop plane that held 50 people. They had a they had a, a, a runway carved out of the wilderness that was over 7,000 feet long. It was all gravel. And there wasn't a road within 75 or 100 miles. And that big old plane landed. And as soon as it landed, up came the Indian guides and their kids are running up with a tractor. It looked like something out of a film in Russia, quite frankly. And this, this big flatbed wooden wagon, and they're grabbing our luggage. They took us down. There was two people to a cabin, and the next morning at 6 o'clock, we woke up and we heard bagpipes playing, and that was part of the deal. The guy was from Scotland. He had worked for the Hudson Bay Company way back in the day, and he, he founded this exclusive resort. Then we also found out that every morning they came in our wood stove and they made a fire with a fresh pot of coffee. Now, how, much, how many think you could handle that, all right? Then we'd eat a sumptuous breakfast with everyone else that was there, and then we'd go out for the day. We decided to bring uh, our video camera, and the video cameras at that time, uh, they, they weren't like this. They were like, like big, like uh, not quite the giant ones when they first come out, but they're big, and they, they, they're in a, a bag like that. And so I don't know for what reason, but uh, I guess just guys being guys, we're more interested in fishing than we were in, in taking a video. But then we said, well, you know, we need to take a video so we can record our exploits for everyone to enjoy, you know, just like on TV. And so... It was, might have been toward the end of the trip. I, I don't remember all the details, but our guide, who was a Native American, took us to this special spot. I mean, uh, this special spot, and there was no one else around there, and it was actually a river. Uh, the, the lakes, the uh, rivers and streams would join one, one lake from another lake. And there was another day we flew in a float plane and landed on a special... I mean, this is the special spot. And so... Um, and so we, we got out, and we took a, a, a few photos. Then we started catching fish, and uh, we put the, the video thing back in the bag. And then later on, said, oh, boy, we better take some more pictures. And, and then when we get home, we're going to enjoy this. And we got home, and sure enough, there's like a minute, a minute of herky-jerky scenery. And then all of a sudden, it went dark gray-green. We had put the video camera back in the bag with the button on. The video camera was working, the batteries were powering it, and it was using up all the film we had. But it didn't have an operator. In effect, it was useless. And in these parables, or not parables, Jesus calls his followers to be fishers of men. And what he says is that fishers of men have to fish. He calls us to be light in the world, but we're not to hide it. We're not to stick it in the video camera, in the bag. And he calls us to be salt, 
but he said that salt has to be salty. Because you and I have been invited into the greatest, not only enterprise, but the greatest mission in all of the world. And that's the rescue mission of Jesus Christ to bear witness and bring his kingdom to bear, first of all, in our own lives, in the lives of our family, the lives of our church, but in the lives of this world that's around us to make a difference for glory, for God and his glory, so that men will praise our heavenly Father who is in heaven. And there's nothing else that you and I can do except the works of the Lord that will cause men to praise him. Last year I had the wonderful privilege of of buying a pickup truck, a brand new pickup truck. Guys, can you say amen? And I had processed that thing, and finally, I knew what I wanted. My, my wife said, I don't want one of those great big old things like that. So, I, you know, when you, get, when you want something really, really badly, you, you'll compromise no matter what you do. So I picked out something that she could drive, and, but I like too. And so I would show... Some of you at church, you've seen it when it first came out, and I'd show you how the tailgate worked differently, and there's even a trunk in the bed, and all these razzmatazz things, and, but you know, no one, I heard no one of you say, well, praise be to our Heavenly Father in Heaven because you bought a pickup truck. And it's only when we do the works of God, as salt and light that make a difference and point people to Jesus Christ, that men will praise our Heavenly Father in Heaven and see Him and see Jesus Christ as the Savior of this world. Praise His name. The first thing that Jesus did, He called us to be fishers of men. I want to read verses 4, 18, and 22. Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to me, to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then he went on, and there was two other brothers that he also called, uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. He calls us to be fishers of men so that we will fish for men. But the first thing, church, brothers and sisters, that he calls us to, he calls us to himself. He calls us to himself. He calls us to love him. He calls us for him to be on our minds, and him to be on our hearts. He calls us to share Him as the light of the world. Often, often we struggle for so many other things. And sometimes in church we struggle to build our ministries and our churches. We put so much effort in it that we end up being keepers of the aquarium rather than fishers of men. I thank God for this aquarium. How about you? But it's only a tool that we can disciple and reach people. The Bible says that God had given them a, it was a new God-given purpose. It was a higher calling. It was a calling that gave them purpose for their life and they 
They began, they saw things differently through a different grid work than what they saw before. They responded, God's word says, immediately because of the value of the call. I I can't imagine how strong that was that someone who their life's occupation, whether it's fishing or for Matthew the tax collector, and he would be considered a fairly wealthy man, he, they would immediately say yes to the Lord, and they'd follow him. And the wonderful thing about this today is that Jesus Christ is still calling us and you, and he's still calling me, first of all, to, our, to himself, but second of all, to be fishers of men. He's still calling us. And he doesn't wait on us to ask him to call us. Back in those days, the rabbis always called someone or, the, or someone who wanted to sit under the teaching of a rabbi would call on them. There'd be a knock on the door. And, hey, Rabbi Benjamin, you know my family. You know I never miss a service in the synagogue. We do all the sacrifices, and I've watched your life, and I'm asking you to please consider me and take me into your, your circle, your school of teaching. That's how you got in. And that's how you were identified. We do know that some of these first disciples had, had wanted to be members of a school, of a rabbinical school, but they weren't. And so they had to settle for being a fisherman. But Jesus came and he did things differently because in his kingdom, things are upside down. God calls us because he's no respecter of persons. And he calls you and he calls me. He called me into the ministry. And I remember when he called me into the ministry and I had such misgivings and, and I just felt so ordinary and I just felt that what could I ever do but I felt compelled to follow Jesus. And one night I heard, and I was in Bible college at Southeastern at that time, and I went to revival services, and I heard, I heard the man preaching how Jesus turned the water into wine. And I went forward that night and I asked him, Lord, would you turn my life? It just seems so plain and so ordinary and so common. Would you touch it and would you turn my life, water into wine? And the Lord Jesus Christ touched me that evening. He's in the business of touching us, praise his name. It's transformation. Leaving all builds a channel for God's grace and for His work in our lives. And yes, it's true. We have received grace upon grace and it's like a blizzard of grace in our life and we stand in this grace, Romans 5 tells us. But there's a work of grace that God has in our life that's transformative. That when we say yes to the Lord and in those areas that we say yes to the Lord, His grace flows to transform us. This week as I was preparing and studying and praying, and I picked up, picked up uh, one of the sources that I looked at, and I, I'm just, man, I'm just, I'm just blown away by this. I'm just, oh my goodness. I'm just blown away. And I was wonderful. And I did something I don't usually do. When I got finished reading that, I kissed the book. Oh, well, I just like, can you imagine? Oh, that's good, right? That's, that's called being rich. That's what that's called, okay. I said, oh, that's so good. And I read the story of the author, Michael Wilkins. He's a, he's a 
a renowned follower of Jesus Christ. And secondly, he's a renowned scholar of the Word of God. And he talked about when he was in high school and he and his buddies were athletes and quite good athletes and they were, they were raised in the local church and they're sitting in youth group or hear the pastor preaching about the Sermon on the Mount and blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are they that mourn and blessed, you'll be comforted and blessed, you know. And he said, we felt, hey, I don't want any of that kingdom stuff because we're doing really well the way it is right now. I don't want to mess up my position and the accolades I'm getting by being poor in spirit. He didn't understand what was going on there. And he went into the military and he tells the story of how he came to the Lord Jesus Christ and he was part of something I'd call special ops and he described a, he described a scene in, the, in, in Vietnam. It might have been the jungles of Vietnam or a rice paddy or one of the hills that they had to take. And he said the battle was over and, and the enemy was, they were vanquished. And he said, I stood around with, and I looked and I gloated over the number of bodies that I had ripped the life from them. But then I started to look at my, my buddies who had fallen in battle and the enemy's bullets had ripped the life out of them. And he said, God broke through in my life. He had a job to do as a soldier. That's not what this is about, whether he was doing his job or not. But it was the fact that he was gloating over the kingdom he had built to be better than anyone else. And he suddenly realized that his strength, his training, and all that he had done and accomplished and prided himself on fell so far short of the glory of God and it would never bring praise to God. And he said, God did something to me as a 19-year-old. And he said, he, I was undone. Undone. In the process of two years, God worked in him. He continued to do his job as a soldier. He made no apology for that. It's his assignment. They were engaged in battle. They had to do what they had to do. But he gave his life over to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit had convicted him, called him to himself, and he said, yes. And today, he is a renowned follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, making an impact on thousands and thousands and thousands of people because the power of Jesus Christ is still the same. He said, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Praise his name. Jesus calls us to be salt. He said, you're the salt of the earth. Verse 13, chapter 5, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? The history of salt, I, I, I was not aware of this, and perhaps some of you in science uh, know this, but I was not. Um, first of all, I, I like salt. How about you? I, yeah, I, I like salt. Like, we have boiled eggs. Like, 
hey, babe, where's the salt? In the cupboard. Like, <laughs> go get it, you know. Um, I didn't know this, that every form of human life, every form of life in this planet must have salt. It's essential for life. I didn't know that, did you? How many knew that? Yes, I figured the scientists, chemists. Yeah, I figured that. I didn't know that. So I researched the history of salt. And do you know that, that salt, uh, in olden days, the trade and production was legally restricted in ancient times? That is, it's been a founding contributor to major civilizations were built upon salt as trade and discovering those things. London, England is here today. That's where its foundations were because it was trading in salt. Um, it, I, I read a, uh, an account published in Time magazine that, that said that in the 6th century, some of the more, the, the, the M-O-O-R, uh, the traders in the Middle East would actually trade an ounce of gold for an ounce of salt. That's how valuable it was. And so when Jesus, and, and let me back up, and in the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, the, the ones that they had offered to the Lord, the burnt sacrifices, they all had to have salt with them. There's, there's no exception to that. You had to have salt with it. It was valuable. So when Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, he just wasn't saying... Get an extra shake out of the salt shaker. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, no, you're the salt of the earth. You're essential. You're essential for life on this planet. The church, my followers, you're essential. And salt does some things. It's God's best answer to persecution and problems of our world. We, um, we met for six and a half years in the Bel Air High School. And... I'll never forget that we used the teacher lounge. I mean, my goodness, we had, we had the nursery under the steps, and I mean, we're using chemists, the chemical labs, and, and we'd get blamed for things, and I, I don't know if we did them or not, but anyway, we'd get blamed for things, and, and, but the congregation was growing. They allowed us to use the teacher's lounge. There's two rooms, and they really needed their furniture updated. And I went in there, one morning before church, and I noticed these documents, and there'd been a, there, there'd been a, a, a teacher's, uh, there's a national convention that was down in the inner harbor at the convention center, and I noticed the documents there, and some of the, this is what, this one caught my eyes right on the top, the top stack, and it was, there was actually a breakout seminar of how to, how to eliminate and marginalize the influence of Christianity in the public schools. It's just like, oh, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So what do you think we did? What do you think we did? I wanted to steal all the papers. I wanted to march in the principal's office and say, how dare you? Don't you know we pay taxes too? Don't you know that we pay good money here? Don't you know that I, we don't appreciate this because we send our kids to the school? Yeah, some homeschool, but we send our kids here. And we just, we think this has no place. I want you to stop it now. We're protesting and we're going to march around Bel Air High School. I 
I want to ask you, would that bring praise to our Heavenly Father? So what we did, we bought them new furniture. Do you think that might? Yeah. Yes, we were a blessing, salt, in that situation. And later on, I invited, I invited the school official, the principal, and his wife to come to church. And he said, we'd be glad to come one Sunday and be there with you. And we established a personal relationship. And we were there for six and a half years, not the two years allotted time. Six and a half years. But he calls us to make a, a difference. And being salt that draws people to the Lord Jesus Christ is the best antidote for the persecution and even problems of our world we serve by being salt that flavors, preserves, and is an antiseptic. But salt's power lies in being different from everything else on the plate. Salt's power relies or lies in being different from everything else on the plate. Jesus said if we lose our virtue, we have no value or purpose and I just want to say this, that where you are, what are the implications of that? And that if God has called you to be a police officer, there is no one that can reach police officers like you as a fellow police officer. No one can do that. If you're a school teacher, no one can reach them like you can. In your family, in your neighborhood, no one can reach them like you can. And God has privileged us with this unique, unique position to be called the salt of the earth. He said, the next, he said, you're the light of the world. Verse 14 and 15. And he, he said, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. It's a city set on a hill. That's the first thing. The church of Jesus Christ. His followers are meant to be public and to be a city set on a hill. We're not meant to keep the salt in the salt shaker. We're not meant to only keep the aquarium. We're meant to be fishers of men. Our purpose is to give light to the house. He said, be intentional about it. Give light to the house. In those days, how the, the average run-of-the-mill house would be a one room or two. And they'd have these little clay lamps, and there's a hole to put the oil in, another hole where the wick would come out, and you'd light it. And what they did, it didn't give off a strong light, but even a weak light in, when it's dark is light. How many know that? It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't get all these LED lights. Oh, my goodness. Some of them look like airplane lights at night when you're driving. It's like, turn them down. You know what I'm saying? It's just, but anyway, but he said what they did, they, they didn't just light it. And put it any old where in a corner. They didn't light it and stick it in, in the closet, or they didn't light it and put a basket over top of it. He said it's lit for a purpose, and they put it on a lampstand that was high, so the light that it had would contrast. It would light the whole house, and that's what the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to do. And you can do that. You don't have to be an outspoken extrovert center of the party to win people to the Lord Jesus Christ and make a difference. How many know that? It's in the little things. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God grows slowly. That's why he said with the wheat and the tares, it takes a long time to plant a wheat seed and have it grow and then it comes to harvest. It's not, you, you don't, hey, you don't plant a watermelon seed one night and then the next day you're eating watermelon. 
or making watermelon pickles. It's in the little things. Sometimes we hear stories, and I've heard them, of evangelists, and thank God for people like this that have this gift, will say they get on an airplane, they sit down next to somebody, and they start talking with them about the Lord Jesus Christ or warning them about the judgment to come, and within 15 or 20 minutes, they've given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's absolutely marvelous. And I've tried that several times, and I still have no testimony. But it's in the little things. But I guarantee you, if someone came to the Lord on an airplane through a stranger, it wasn't because that's the first time they heard the gospel in their life. Someone's been praying for that individual. Someone on the job was living in salt and light. Someone in the neighborhood was serving them, serving God and serving people. And that individual, God used them at just the right time to do that. You've heard me refer to our, our neighbor, Myrtle, who passed away about a year and a half ago. Yeah, she's 94, and um, we, we just determined we live in a, a neighborhood that's mostly older than what we are. And, and, um, and they're mostly all widows now, just about, yeah. Uh, so guys, pay your life insurance up is all I can say. <laughs> your wife's going to, she might need it one day, so. But. We looked up one day, and we have determined just to be a blessing, to be salt and light where we are. They all have some strong traditions in faith, but just to be a blessing and to offer prayer and just words of encouragement and take them over banana bread or cookies or whatever in the world it is. And uh, my wife had established a relationship with Myrtle, first of all, because she liked the woman. Not because she could get her saved and say, I've got someone saved. How many understand that? She liked, loved her first. Every Thursday night, Chris purposed to go over and spend an hour or so with her. And I talked openly with Myrtle. We'd talk about the scripture. She was a crusty and could be at times crabby old woman. She had lots of money, plenty. There's not a need in this world. And, and, and. Uh, she delighted in a conflict or confrontation, particularly with a man, and she could knock the pegs out from underneath him. I mean, so young ladies, this just didn't spring up in the last two years. This has been going on for a long time. And, and, and she could do it. She was smart enough to not just wish it. She was actually smart enough to do it. But Chris went over. She was there. And then one morning we looked up after Four years or so, and we saw the ambulance in the yard. We said, what in the world is the ambulance doing at Myrtle's house? We ran over there, and there's some of the neighbors, and there's the, the, the uh, ambulance attendants, and the lights are on, and we went in and come to find out she had had a stroke that would prove to be fatal within a week. All night long, she, she lay on the floor, and someone found her in the morning, and they, they put her in bed, but they called the ambulance, and I'll never forget, Chris got there first, and then I went in, and Chris is standing in the bedroom by Myrtle's bed and probably holding her hand, and she said, Myrtle, can I pray? And all Myrtle could say was, yes, please. And so in the middle of that time, Chris prayed a prayer of faith for this individual 
that she had run, won the, white, the right to, and the ambulance people and the neighbors just bowed their heads, and no one said, no, this isn't the time for this. We believe that Myrtle's in heaven. God had visited with her on different occasions. She would talk with Chris about it, and we believe that. But I want to set all that to say that anyone, anyone can be used of the Lord. People will give glory to God because of it. Jesus said that, said this. He said that let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Shine intentionally for all to see. And I want to encourage us this year, shine intentionally. Shine intentionally. What are your way? What can you do? Who could you call? Be the good Samaritan. Be intentional for all to see. Serve others in such a way to bring glory to God. I think it's an anathema. I think it's an anathema to God if we or a church does good works simply to grow their church. I really do. We do it to serve people and to serve God. And serving God will cause people to praise and honor the Lord because of, he said, our good works. Praise his name. I, I am, I'm just awestruck and that God would ask you and me to join him. How about you? Yes. And it's not hard. But it does mean we have to be different. It does mean that when you're with your friends, there are times you have to say no. It does mean that you might be looked at a little bit differently, but it also means they'll remember. It also means that there will be a time when some of them at least will come back and say, can we pray for you? I'm going to have the band come. We want to go into communion. I was in Penn State University, and I don't know, just crazy. I, young men, they're 18 years old and brought up in the best of homes. <sighs> Thank God for my parents' prayers, and I just determined, determined that I was going to try the other side. I was going to try the other side. I didn't care. I, I thought I was strong enough. I was big enough. I was going to leap into the dark. And so when this cute little young lady invited me, said, hey, I like, she invited me on a date. That flipped me upside down. All of a sudden, and I knew her circle of friends. I knew about them. I said, I didn't, yeah, I didn't stop. You know, I'm going to live with the guilt. I'm going to live with the consequences. I'm going to do it. I've been taught my whole life to do the right thing, and I'm going to jump in with both feet. God's always there. And then this is what she said. She handed me a slip of paper. This is where it is. This is the date, and it's B-Y-O-B and drugs. And I knew what that party was all about. And I was flattered to death that a young woman would want me but there was a line and I just said I can't do it I won't do it well I never got invited to another party by her okay that was the end of that but I'm eternally grateful that I said no but I played 
some football in high school, and I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't very good. No. I made first team on a championship football team, but shortly was injured. It was an injury that I carry with me today, and that was the end of that. But I remember we used to go to church on Sunday nights, and in my home, you're either all in or you're backslidden. That's just the way it was. And on Sunday night, Sunday night was always reserved for, for reviewing the football game films from Friday night. And, and I, I just said, Coach, I can't, I can't do it. We go to church on Sunday night. Well, okay, Druss, that's the choice you want to make, but there's consequences. And I did it. There was a guy there that went on to, I believe it was the University of Arizona, full scholarship. There's several of them. Eleven of them, my graduating class, had full scholarships. Penn State, some at Notre Dame, Temple University. I mean, there's a powerhouse. But later, he gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all I know, I was a freshman and he was a senior and the freshman used to hit us in the helmet and spike us and we were dirt trash. I found out later, he told my dad, he said, well, it was because of Paul. He said his testimony. He had something to live for. He had some boundaries. I don't say that to draw attention to myself, but I say that that is worth it. Salt's power lies in being different. And that's what the reason that he came to Jesus Christ was because of the difference. And I want to encourage you that you can make a difference in people's lives. Praise his name. And nothing else is worth being called to the Lord. Praise God. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to look to him.